This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hi, I'm Catherine Nichols. I'm here with Sandra Newman, and this is Lit Century, our podcast where we talk about one book for each year of the 20th century. This week, our year is 19... 74, and our book is a philosophical paper. It's What Is It Like to Be a Bat by Thomas Nagel. The paper's argument is that it's impossible for people to fully know what it's like to perceive the world through sonar, even if we understand thoroughly how the mechanism works uh, in the bat's brain. He argues that you could have all the objective facts about a bat's brain and its functioning and still not have access to the subjective facts about that animal's experiences. So the link between consciousness and the material world isn't thoroughly understood or potentially even understandable at all by our minds. Um, And Sandy and I are going to talk a lot about why this is worth saying and why it matters. So Sandy, I'm the one who chose this for us to talk about. And one of the reasons that I chose it is Reading this, it, it kind of put me back in the frame of mind um, where I originally decided to major in philosophy in college. I, I, uh, I got so excited about it. But all of the things that I was thinking felt like they were outside of sort of the frame of the debate that this article is positioning itself inside. Um, mm-hmm. Before we get to all those things, I'm interested in whether you have any instinctive sympathy for the idea that we're all essentially minds or that we're all essentially bodies. If somebody says our conscious experience is really just reducible to a series of physical events in the world in our brains, in our bodies, like that kind of thing. um, And we're just kind of along for the ride. Does that seem real to you? Or do you think more like you would want to argue? No, there's something else about being a person beyond that i think that i tend to logically think that it's i mean when we people talk about the the mind body divide that seems to be aiming for a compromised position which doesn't make natural doesn't naturally make sense to me so so i can go like full idealist as i understand that term and believe that everything is just a set of concepts appearing to consciousness yeah. But I, and I can go full materialist. And I almost think that you don't need to make a distinction between those two things. It's sort of, you know, like that they're kind of six of one, half a dozen of the other on some level. But the, the divide, which it seems to me that Nagel is very comfortable with, is something that my brain can't quite make work. And I think that's part of what's fascinating about the article is that. I could read it and I could foresee where he was, like I kept making objections in my own head and then he had foreseen those objections or heard them from other people and incorporated them. And and it was very interesting where he went with it and I had a lot of respect for what he did with it. 
but I was left at the end looking at him as if he were a bat whose experience I could not <laughs> like <laughs> conceptualize properly. Um, yeah, I don't think that I've ever agreed with you more on this entire podcast. Yay! <laughs> we're 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 so right. But you thought it first because you have a philosophy degree, so you're the one who's the most right. Um, I should wear a T-shirt that says that. <laughs> you <laughs> should. Yeah, degrees, we are I'm definitely keeping score. <laughs> 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 um, it, no, I I just think that the mind and the body can each entirely disprove the other. And mm-hmm. that it's a hundred percent both, and nothing will ever change the percentage from a hundred hundred. Um, right. As long as there is a question, the question will always be answered as both. And any sympathy that people have toward a materialist or an idealist explanation is aesthetic, basically. Yeah, or or a matter of predisposition. Like yeah. I, I read, I was looking up. Howard had like read some of his most. I think it's his most recent book, Nagel's most recent book, Mind and Cosmos. Um, because Howard, my husband, being this sort of person, actually objected to something Nagel said and wrote him a letter. Oh, wow. <laughs> so they got into this correspondence, and Nagel was like, "Oh, I write about this in my next book." But anyway, in that book. Nagel says specifically that he is an atheist because he wants to be an atheist. He says, it isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. And you can definitely see in this essay that he doesn't really take into account and possibly isn't able to take into account a fully idealist, you know, a, a an idea of the world where it is all just, you know, intellectual phenomena appearing to a consciousness or however you would put it if you were a proper philosophy graduate and not me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I don't know that I want to be the model of propriety in this conversation. Um, All of the things that that I'm about to say are things that would probably get me thrown out of school all over again. Like if you go back to um, Plato and Aristotle uh, arguing about this problem, essentially of whether the truth of experience is in the mind or in the world, you have many, many, many generations of people having this argument in one form or another. And nearly all of the people who are arguing that the reality of life is in the mind are essentially conservative because Mm. the position that they're taking is that what feels right to them, what feels true, what they think about things is more real than whatever evidence somebody might be going and finding in the world that either supports or disproves their claim. So the people who are idealists are often very religious. I mean, I think you can see a lot of ways that if you're, you're thinking of, you know, Galileo versus the church or something like that. Like the the person who's saying, let's go out into the world and actually check what's happening. The materialist in a sense is usually the person who is causing trouble. And the idealist is the person who wants the status quo to continue so that 
the, the things that feel right to them are also the things that are borne out by society as truth. Right? Yeah. And it's also kind of notable, politically speaking, that the things that are defined within this framework as facts are include the points of view of people who do not have power, who then are sort of like kinds of data points that can be reinterpreted or dismissed or, you know, it's or treated as having no moral significance as we as we discussed long ago in the cheaper by the dozen episode. Yes. Um, yes. Yeah. Well, and it's just very interesting to me that this paper comes out in 1974 because I think this is maybe not the first. I don't know if it's the absolute first. So like, I don't want to put my name on that claim, but I don't know that there are many much earlier positions of arguing somewhat for the primacy of the mind in any kind of mind body discussion that's essentially pushing from the left because he's arguing that other people's subjective experience and he called, you know, he's like, Oh, it's bats and it's alien intelligences and And all of these things that seem um, there's a lot of like just the, the idea of using the word intelligence to mean another subjective experience. It feels very seventies to me. He's grouping together a lot of kind of buzzwords of subjectivity of, of the time, but those buzzwords were buzzy because the idea that you actually do need to take into consideration what other people's subjective experience is of an event in deciding what actually happened. Yes. And the idea that you can't just decide what they would probably think or would probably have experienced based on your imaginative reconstruction of it without their input. Exactly. Yes, it's exactly that. You can't have somebody external to, let's say, a crime, a judge saying, what are the facts of this case? And then decide what justice would be in that case, without taking into consideration that the subjective experience of the people involved might be different than what the external person believes they might be or ought to be or could be. Yeah. Or that that you can't just imagine your way into... Um, somebody else's mind and write a book from their perspective. Um, I think that this idea that that self-identification might be all that's necessary, for instance, for saying somebody is gay or trans, like even since the 90s, when I remember it seemed like there was a meme of people saying like, so-and-so says they're gay, but are they really? And they need, you know, you need to sort of prove it in the following ways if you're going to have this identification. But I think that the the idea that the subjective experience of being a certain way is in fact evidence enough and there doesn't have to be some extra layer of proof that is externally verifiable for somebody to claim that something is going on with them. It feels to me like this is the beginning of that idea being taken seriously broadly in society. 10 years earlier, almost 10 years earlier than um, Carol Gilligan. But I was thinking it's like kind of in the same universe as Carol Gilligan saying, oh my gosh, I have it all written down. Sorry. So she's responding to Lawrence Kohlberg, who is working in the Piaget tradition, who are saying that moral development, the highest level of moral development is when you have an internal rule that you obey and that you believe should be applicable in all situations. 
And now that's obviously a very uh, idealist perspective. It's like how Kant believes ethics should be conducted. The truest level of ethical reasoning is where you put everyone in one container and say that that this applies to everyone. That's a categorical imperative, you know. And so for Carol Gilligan to say, well, maybe for some people, but for other people, the right thing to do is to essentially look at the world more carefully. It's like to uh, to take it out of um, Kant's hands and to say that, like, let's say Hume or uh, Aristotle, any materialist has a look in into what the highest level of ethical engagement might be. Maybe it's really connecting with people and figuring out what can be worked out, what the details of the situation are, what everyone's feelings are, and taking other minds seriously as subjective experience that's important outside of objectively verifiable facts. Yeah, I think, I mean, I'm, I'm actually, I'm holding myself back from saying anything about the categorical imperative because I can just... Kant is one of the people who I find so stupid that it's it's shameful to me because obviously other people think quite highly of him (laughs) and they, you know, other people, probably including people who are smarter than I am, but, but the the categorical imperative particularly irritates me because it, it seems to me that there are so many things wrong with it. However, I do, I do think that I give him a lot of credit for, for class, for the fact that he specifically says that his categorical imperative even applies to aliens on other planets if they exist. I thought that was like, like really a class move, like real power grab that, you know, I I take my hat off to you, Herr Kant, for that. (laughs) Just in case, plant your flag on Mars. Sorry, I I wish that you would say more about it. I think that you have a great perspective there. Um, if I if I if I had just read it recently, I probably would be like unstoppably launching into all of my terrible like Kant obsession. But um, no, I'm actually pro Kant. Um, but partly it is because of where the battle lines were drawn when I was a student. Even though I think he's making an inherently conservative and exclusive an exclusive of me personally point. I don't think that he is, I don't think that his categorical imperative includes me. I don't think that he has room for me in the world. At the same time, the way that the battle lines were drawn when I was a student, he was on my side of certain aesthetic issues, including the idea of even taking aesthetics seriously as a field of study. Um, oh, so yeah, yeah. actually, I'm, I was mainly thinking of the categorical imperative. The way that the categorical imperative makes sense to me is that if you're making a judgment that doesn't, that doesn't apply to anyone in that situation, then it's, it's not that your judgment is wrong, it's that it's not a moral decision. And you can define the situation as finely as need be, which makes me feel like there's more Carol Gilligan in the categorical imperative than, than might meet the eye. But if you're saying it's only necessary 
for people in my culture, or it's only necessary for people who are as tall as me, or it's only necessary for, you know, uh, on certain days of the week or whatever, um, then it's not a moral judgment. And I think Mm -hmm. that, I think that that's true. I think that that is one of the features that identifies moral versus other forms of judgment, that it's trying to be categorical, even if it, even if it never actually is because every situation is too care too there are too many layers of specificity in any situation for anything to actually apply all that broadly that question of how much research you have to do how much being careful about the world how much curiosity about the world is necessary i think nagel is pushing pretty far into it is necessary to be curious about other minds and i think the question that is raised by this essay for me is what is the conservative side that he is pushing back against? What is the other thing? If the battle lines are drawn between this and something, what is on the other side of it? And I think the thing on the other side of it is the branch of philosophy that's very concerned with figuring out exactly how words mean things. Mm. And I think the reason that that became the conservative within philosophy perspective is um, because it's useful for AI Mm -hmm. and it's useful for computers and therefore you can get money for it. And I think that's why that became the macho thing to study. Yeah, it also goes along with the the battle lines between continental philosophy and Anglo-American philosophy. So like the continental schools of philosophy never fully subscribed to all of that stuff. And therefore, it became a very Anglo and thus right-wing thing to be into the analytical philosophy tendency to focus on these linguistic distinctions, which is something that I've I've learned about a number of times, and it just completely erases itself (laughs) the minute I turn my back. (laughs) It's another one of those things. This is why I never was a satisfactory student of philosophy. Um, but yeah, to, needless to say, I don't um, think right wingness is something that we we should. I mean, it, after all, there's plenty of right wing continental philosophy, or there, there's plenty of yeah, 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 whatever. You know what I mean? But I think that yeah, but you know, in the like country, in the 1980s, 1970s, that we're talking about, it's it tends it tends to be drawn up that way that people like Foucault or Derrida are seen as left wing, even when they not weren't necessarily left wing, and and certainly they were kind of broadly part of a, a left wing um, way of seeing the world. I don't know moral relativism, for instance, which certainly is is part of what we're talking about. Yeah, I think it is what we're talking about, and I think that. This is the this is the part of this. I mean, I, I don't think I've actually hit upon the dulcet clarity that I was hoping for yet. <laughs> but we're about to get even worse. Yeah, we're just uh, wait. Oh, oh, we're going farther from the dulcet clarity. Okay. Unfortunately, I'm just gonna we have to get back to that. Okay. We're gonna die. No, but I want to. I was like, why? There's so many centuries between Plato and Aristotle and Nagel. Why did it take this long to get an idealist attack from the left, essentially? 
when it seems like it was quite stable for a very long time, that idealism leans right, materialism leans left. And well, I, you know, I'm not sure, but I wouldn't see him as an idealist. I think he's really like, he's, he's being like very, very, very careful not to claim anything more than he can absolutely claim. And he's just claiming that we can't really know. Yeah, I, I agree with you about what is actually in the essay. But I also think that that has to do with university culture and um, how philosophy is performed inside academia. I don't know that he's, I don't know that people received this as him claiming very little. Well, I'm sure people, but people are not notoriously bad listeners to something which might threaten to be right and would prefer to listen to something which they can easily disprove. Everyone should be switching off our podcast then because we've already established. (laughs) (laughs) I know. Well, we terrify them that they're sure to twist our words and pretend we said something we didn't because we're so obviously right. I just, I I wish for my dulcet clarity. I I know I don't have it. (laughs) The, the question that I, that I wanted to actually address is, what is it about the 20th century that made this nearly stable standoff between these two positions get confused? I think that part of it has to do with two different uses for intellectual labor in the 20th century. And I think that those uses for intellectual labor are pretty new. And I don't think that Um, I don't think that they didn't exist before then. I just think that they weren't in the foreground of society. And one of them is um, coming up with new technologies. And then the other is creating more peace between different people. Are those, are you seeing those as opposed to each other? I'm no, I'm saying that they both exist and that they are sometimes opposed to each other and sometimes allied with each other. I don't think that they were necessarily seen as global priorities to the degree that they were in the 20th century before then. Not that there weren't people who were pursuing peace and technology before. I just think that those became major uses for intellectual labor as opposed to minor. Yeah, that that, sound, that sounds very true to me. And so how does that affect um, the the fact that we get a confusion suddenly between like idealism and materialism. Because I think that materialism as new technologies got closer to artificial intelligence, uh, materialism became a money problem. And um, I think that that, I think it kind of feminizes idealism because it puts Ah. the question of, how people can cooperate on a global scale and not get into new wars. I think it gives a feeling of Alan Alda-ishness. I think that there's something... That's the worst word I ever heard. What, Alan Alda? Alan Alda-ishness. Okay. I mean, like, if you ever don't want to call me something, let it be Alan Alda-ish. <laughs> I think that that there's a as as um, 
questions that could potentially be um, exploited for technological advancement, and then you get money for them. I think that you can see the connection between the rise of the computer industry, the rise of the machismo of asking AI relevant questions in philosophy, and the sidelining of of uh, this kind of question. I think that you can see those things rising together in the second half of the 20th century. That's interesting. Um, that I mean, that all makes sense and rings completely true to me. I mean, I was thinking that it might just be because this, and this might just be my dummy's way of, of putting the same thing, but um, that it has to become confused because it's so clear that materialism is winning. Um, well, and the only the way to fight war. back, what? Oh, it's winning the aesthetic war, but nothing is ever going to actually answer the question. Oh yeah, nothing's ever going to answer the question, but we, but we have ways that we assume the question has been resolved when we make decisions, when we go about our daily lives, when we treat people as being silly or being to be taken seriously in the arguments they make. And definitely we've come down on the side of materialism. We are supposed to always make decisions based on the material. Like regardless of whether you believe in a God, you're supposed to make decisions based on the material world. And if you don't, then people see you as crazy. And that's that's our world that we have now. Um, but I think for a lot of people, to see themselves as completely material is a step too far and it becomes uncomfortable and terrifying. And they're not willing to go back to, to seeing the world as some sort of a spiritual emanation. And they, and in fact, they are no longer able to see that as anything but absurd, but they don't want to give up having a soul. Yeah. That's, so that's my feeling about it. I don't know if that jibes with what you think at all or not. No, it does. It, it very much does. And I think that that's why, I think even though the arguments that are related to AI have increased since this time, but mm -hmm. so have arguments related to self-identification and subjectivity. Both of those have amplified. But still, if you look at, um, you know, what do people write about this essay on the internet? Um, there's people getting furious about how um, imprecise the idea of, you know, what is it like? The, the, they're like, oh, subjectivity is just inherently imprecise. And Nagel himself says this in there, that mm. that there, there aren't necessarily objective facts about subjectivity beyond what the actual person or bat or alien is experiencing. So other people complaining that, that subjectivity, as far as they're concerned, is something that, since we can't define it well enough, we shouldn't even, we should treat it as not existing, or what? Yeah, the, it, like, what are they actually getting mad about? Like, if somebody is getting mad about <laughs> subjectivity in a philosophy class, what are they actually mad about? They're mad about having to share power with people who are saying, I disagree with you because my experience of the world is different. And that could be women, it could be trans people, it could be people from different countries, uh, it could be aliens or bats. Um, but but which one of those are they actually the most angry at? Like, clearly, they're the most angry at other human beings who are saying, Carol Gilligan style, your hierarchy um, is not my hierarchy. 
And if we're going to be in this room as equals, you need to stop asserting that hierarchy. If we're going to get along, if we're going to share power, if we're going to not have another war, whatever, that, that peacekeeping means too much of that. And so it seems unmacho. It seems un. It, it it disagrees on an aesthetic level because it's like a, it's a um, an attack on power. And so people want to disagree with this essay. So so basically, the what we're saying is that materialism has now become the doctrine of power, whereas previously, whatever the the prioritizing of subjectivity, deontological arguments. Um, were the voice of power. Yes, yes, that's what I'm saying. And I think that it has, uh, that it's a new thing. And that despite the fact that materialism is the voice of power now, the subjectivity arguments are also getting stronger. And I think that, that it's a new balance between those two concepts, but it's still pretty balanced. It's not, it's like one of them may seem cooler and the other one may seem feminized, and they're le- for less cool, but there isn't an actual winner. Okay, now I want to cause trouble by going back to what we started with. Yeah. Which was that we, we sort of agreed that you had to be 100% one way or the other, and therefore we're basically saying that <laughs> that these arguments for subjectivity, and this is where we, we kind of get back to the Nagel particularly, these arguments for subjectivity are idealist arguments. And any any attempt to detach them from the belief that the world is, is purely conceptual is just obfuscation or cowardice, I guess. I don't know. Do we do are we saying that? Um yeah, I'm pretty comfortable saying that. Um, I think that it's something that people could very reasonably attack by pointing out the text, not saying that. But I still think that, I think that you're right that splitting the difference is, is just false. Like you can't split the difference. Mm-hmm. It's not 50-50, yeah. it's only 100%. I mean, I think what, what Nagel is trying to do, just to give him credit for for his argument, like just to, just to say what he actually says and not to read anything into it or change it to something that can be easily refuted. Yeah. Um, he's really, he's really saying, which I think is inarguable, no matter how much of a materialist you are, that the problem of consciousness is not susceptible to objective study. And really all we have is our experience of what it is like. Um, and we, you know, somebody else's consciousness, I mean, what, what is meant by not being able to study it objectively is that somebody else's consciousness is not, is not accessible to study by me. I can only study my own consciousness and I can only study it with my consciousness. And therefore we have a thing which we all know exists and really in which everything exists to us, but which we cannot talk about <laughs> yeah. in a way. So, so he's saying that. And I think what he says is actually like kind of, it's powerful. And like as a, as a refutation of what reductivist accounts of 
of consciousness, I think it's it's pretty powerful. Um, but I think it's also fair to appreciate it as as a kind of a of a, a sabotage to that whole way of of thinking to that pure materialism. I I agree. I think that as literature, it also it has a feeling of power as literature. And I think it's one of the reasons that it's such a famous paper um, because just the title, what is it like to be a bat? It already brings so much to mind that you, you instantly understand many things about his argument that bats have sonar. We just don't know what it's like. We can imagine, but that's just like imagining you belong to a different religion you you might have some ideas about what that might be like, but you really don't know subjectively mm-hmm. what it's like. And even the imprecision of the language, what is it like? It's not like anything. It's a question for art mm. and uh, a question for the imagination. And I think that as, like, if you read it as literature, I think that it brings a lot of sensation and images to mind to support this idea of subjectivity um, and includes things that he's saying, well, the, the brain and the mind is not equivalent to saying either the word water or saying H2O because we really don't know what it's like to fly around with sonar instead of using, you know, the senses that we have, even people who do echolocate. And that's something that's possible for humans to learn. People who echolocate still have brains that are set up with visual cortexes and stuff like that mm-hmm. with whatever. Um, I thought, yes, that- we, we would not enjoy bad art. Yeah, and we don't even enjoy, like, I um, read a thing once about um, how how you can tell if you're really enjoying music from another culture, um, as opposed to just sort of like sounds that are pleasant, but really like enjoying it as art, if you can tell when the piece is about to end. Um, And I think that it's very easy to not know those signals, to not be able to feel, feel music as music. Um, from even other human cultures. And I think that, that that's sort of the reason that this paper is challenging is that he's challenging people to be more curious about other humans, not really bats. Yes, and he's also saying something. He's also saying that curiosity is the curiosity. First, that curiosity and imagination are the only means by which we have any hope of understanding consciousness as a problem. But he's also implying strongly throughout the entire essay that we, even after we have listened to what somebody says about their experience and done our level best to imagine their experience, we still don't know what their experience is. And that is a really radical thing to say. Um, and really means that we can't just listen to them and then make decisions. We have to give them power. Yeah. I mean, he, doesn't, he doesn't draw any of these political conclusions, but they are implicit in the essay. And that's why it's not even sayable until the 1970s, as far as I can tell, is because it's too radical politically. <laughs> it's like it's a, it's a 
it's one of the things that, you know, he, he gives mathematical examples that if everyone died before certain mathematical concepts had been um, discovered, they would still kind of exist. But I think that this is a, a philosophical slash political position that couldn't have even been stated until the world looked a certain way. And that is a very 20th century set of conditions, um, including a political motive for not starting new world wars, for understanding other people and trying to cooperate with them more and share power better. Yeah, I wonder if it's hard to, like, I always think that most of these thoughts have been thought before, but for them to get an audience is the thing that suddenly becomes possible. And then like, it's like, it's like what, what we said, what I was saying before about how people cannot hear most of what you say if they don't want to agree with it and therefore they turn it into something else in their heads that they can easily refute. Um, I think an argument like this would be extremely difficult to formulate with the dulcet clarity that he, that he does offer us. Um, and would be impossible for people to embrace and for it to become the like the landmark thought in a in a certain field and to be something that actually escaped from the world of philosophy and was something that laymen read and so on and so forth. Yes. But but there's something about the thought that is so obvious. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like if you've ever thought about consciousness, you're like, well, yes. Like, like I, I was reading page one, and like I said, I, you know, my mind was al- already able to advance through the stages of his argument pretty much because it's all kind of there. Like, as soon as you start proposing it, it's, it's there. Yeah, um, I completely agree. I think that as that that it has a quality of um, inevitability given how radical and surprising it seems to have been in context. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, yeah, it's like a thought that you have in kindergarten. Yes. Um, and it's like the surprising thing is that there needed to be the whole infrastructure in which it could be disseminated and taken seriously by adults. Yeah. One of the things that's, that's really jarring and fascinating about reading it, like thinking about it as art is that it has really has that quality of something that you've thought of in kindergarten that you've thought before, but you never thought of it as being a thought. Yeah. Like that it should be taken seriously and argued with. Yeah. That's just like, Oh, well that's, that is what it is like to be a consciousness. Yeah. I have, I have read like the first few pages of this before, but didn't finish it and finishing the whole thing. I was really shocked with myself. Like, cause I definitely knew what it was in it. And yet I was still disappointed that the article did not tell me what it is like to be a bat. <laughs> <laughs> so like, I would be that jerk leaving a one-star Amazon review saying, <laughs> you know, one out of 10 did not tell me what it is like to be a bat. <laughs> all right. That's all for our discussion of Thomas Nagel and what is it like to be a bat? Thank you to our listeners, and thank you as always to Adam Bear for our music, and to everyone at LitHub for hosting us. If you'd like to write to us, we're at LitCenturyPod on Twitter, and LitCenturyPodcast at gmail.com for email. Thank you, and bye till next week! <laughs>